I believe that the best we can do in order to facilitate a positive emergence in this system shift at this bifurcation point uh, is to help as many as possible of us to relate in deeper and more complex ways to ourselves, to each other, to society, and to the planet. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Hi, I'm Dr. Dan Stickler. Before we get into today's episode, I want to talk to you about a protocol that I'm passionate about that I use in my practice. You know, everyone wants to slow down aging, but few are really doing it the right way. There's something I do recommend for my clients doing just two days a month. It's a bodily cleanse that helps get rid of old defective cells. These are sometimes called senescent cells or referred to as zombie cells. And they are shown to be related to so many symptoms of poor aging. This bodily cleanse is a supplement which contains a group of ingredients called senolytics. Senolytic ingredients help our body to flush senescent cells helping with easier repair and rejuvenation from muscles to joints to how we feel every day. Qualia Synolytic is the bodily cleanse supplement taken just two days a month for healthy aging that you have to try. Now, research on aging and longevity, including a beta study on Qualia Synolytic, shows that Synolytic supplementation can play a huge role in enhancing how we age. Now, to learn more about Synolytic research and to try Qualia Synolytic risk-free for 100 days, Go to neurohacker.com, use the code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, for a free gift with purchase. That's Qualius Synolytic for better aging at neurohacker.com. Welcome to this episode of Collective Insights Podcast. I'm Dr. Daniel Stickler, the uh, medical director for Neurohacker Collective. And today we have a special guest, one that I've uh, requested um, to have on the show. He is social entrepreneur, thinker, and catalyst, Thomas Bjorkman. Uh, he is the co-founder of the Excarit Foundation in Stockholm. I'll have to get that clarified, uh, which supports the work of social entrepreneurs and change agents. He is the author of The Market Myth. Uh, he wrote The Nordic Secret with Leon Anderson and the book that I really found him from was The World We Create. From God to Market. Thomas, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for trying to pronounce the <laughs> Swedish name of uh, our foundation in, in Stockholm. It is Ekvärdet Foundation, or uh -huh. sometimes we call it the Oak Island Foundation, because that is what that means in Swedish. Uh, that, would have, that would have been easier, I think. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So I'll tell you, I want to let the listeners know uh, about how I found you. So I don't know what prompted me to grab this book, um, The World We Create, From God to Market, but I did, and I can't remember. It, it, I bought it like right after it was published, so I can't remember exactly when. It was a couple of years ago. And at the time, I was, uh, I was really diving deep into complexity, and I think that's why it came up in my, my Amazon book feed. But... Um, I picked up the book and started reading it and just couldn't put it down. Um, it is 
one of the best books I have found for helping people to understand complexity. And that's, I refer people to this book all the time. Um, and I know this is um, something you've spent basically a career working with is understanding complexity in, in all aspects of life. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, how that came about? Yeah, th thank you. So, so a, li a little bit about my background. I'm, I'm Swedish, uh, obviously. Uh, I <laughs> come, come from a humble middle class or even lower middle class uh, background. I was the first in my family on both of my mothers and my father signed to go to university. Uh, but uh, I found out fairly early in life that I had a talent for mathematics and physics. So that is what I studied at uh, university. And that was really my first meeting with complexity and complexity science. That, that was from a natural science perspective. Uh, but then for various reasons, I, I left the academic world and went into the business world and became a serial entrepreneur, started businesses in IT, in property and in uh, banking. Uh, and it was really during my banking years that I started to think about complexity also from a social science point of view and starting to see uh, the market as a adaptive complex system, uh, which I found explained a lot of the things that was going on in the market much better than the traditional neoclassical uh, uh, equilibrium uh, theories that were developed more than 100 years ago, because back then, that was the sort of the mathematical tools we had back then, and we mm -hmm. couldn't really model complex systems like we can today. Um, and then uh, I sold my banking business uh, some uh, 15 years ago and then had the opportunity to start my own foundation in Stockholm, uh, the Oak Island Foundation, Ekfere. And there I really wanted to start diving a bit deeper into complex social systems and, and more specifically look at the um, interdependence between or the co-evolution of uh, our personal inner uh, worlds our inner consciousness and uh, societal change. And, mm -hmm. and, and those are of course also possible to see as two complex systems. You can see as you, uh, your, your mind or your consciousness as an evolving complex system that is under lifelong development and growth, hopefully. <laughs> uh, and you can also see the, the social world that we are in as a complex system that sometimes reaches these points that we in physics call bifurcation points or phase shifts, where, where the whole system is going through an emergent complex uh, transformation. Uh, and I believe that that's where we are right now. We, we are at one of these bifurcation points where our society in a very fundamental way is, is shifting. It seems like we've we've kind of built most of modern society off of a, a complicated thinking and not a complex thinking. Um, can you explain the difference between the two and why you think that we've gone down that road? Well, uh, complicated uh, systems are systems that you can, uh, in principle and in theory, 
uh, understand by studying the parts of the system. So, uh, a, a typical example could be a complex engineering system. It could be a, a Boeing, an aircraft. Uh, and to understand how that aircraft is functioning, you can do that, or you, you might even say that you must do that through analyzing all the, all the details. And even if there are perhaps no living person on earth that really understands all the details of how a, uh, a Boeing uh, is really functioning, in, prin in principle, you can do that. And the, in the Boeing organization as such, uh, I hope that there is an understanding of how everything there is, is, is working. Whereas mm -hmm. a complex system, there you cannot understand uh, those systems by looking at uh, uh, the, the details of all the parts. So the very powerful tool of analytical understanding that has really been the basis of, of our scientific approach all the way since the enlightenment, really looking at the parts and analyzing the parts and by understanding the parts, you can, you can understand the whole. Uh, those tools do not really uh, work. And uh, a, a typical uh, complex system, if we stay in the natural world, could be a weather system. Uh, um, a weather system has properties on a larger scale that you cannot derive from uh, the properties of, uh, uh, of the parts. Mm -hmm. And there one is, is sometimes using the language and talking about emergent properties. And most living, systems and certainly uh, our social system i already mentioned the market but also the social system taken as a whole uh, are complex systems uh, and uh, are exhibiting these kinds of uh, emergent uh, patterns um, and also these face shifts that they sometimes can go through I uh, I can remember when I first started, my realization of uh, complex systems was probably around 2007, 2008, um, being a, a surgeon. And specifically, I was working with obesity, um, doing obesity surgery. And I was taking care of patients that had a litany of chronic health conditions that weren't being addressed. And I started seeing a lot of relationships with other things. And I thought, well, why aren't we paying attention to this? And, and then uh, I can remember the Foresight Institute, I think they came out with an obesity map back in 2012. They've recently updated it, but they talked about the complexity of obesity in the UK. And it was so impressive to me. I mean, I, I was like, oh my God, somebody actually has put onto paper what I've been experiencing <laughs> in medicine. And uh, I can remember somebody said, um, you know, it's almost like we have to reinvent medicine, we can't fix it, because we've gone so far down the, the path of looking at the human system as complicated, uh, starting way back with the germ theory and moving forward, we shifted into that mode of uh, algorithms, and, you know, where we think we can predict outcomes of different interventions within the system. And an engineer once told me, you can't apply complicated thinking to a complex system. 
And I'm like, well, that's exactly what it feels like we're doing in medicine right now. Mm-hmm. And we are doing it, in, of course, um, in business, and we are doing it in uh, in politics and in in society uh, generally. We we are so um, uh, fought uh, in in uh, during our education at, and at university to use these uh, analytical tools that are super valuable of course in in many cases but then uh, not helpful at all to understand the complex system and and again um, one of my favorite examples there is our understanding of the market so when when um, macroeconomics started to develop uh, at the end of the 1800s then we didn't have any any tools to understand complex uh, systems. We didn't even have a language for it, even if some thinkers understood perhaps that concept already back then. So it was not that strange that the scientists that were trying to model the market was looking towards uh, physics and calculus and using the equilibrium theory. And of course, that is some sort of approximation. But when you're starting to look at a rapidly developing for example, technological environment that is shifting um, the the context of the market constantly, like like we are having now, mm-hmm. of course. Then it's much much more useful to look at the market as a complex adaptive uh, system instead. And of course, that is what complexity economics uh, are doing today. But uh, that's still a very young. Uh, science and it's not usually taught not at least at undergraduate level at uh, univer- at universities yeah it seems like there's a lot of uh, a lot of the complexity thinkers are are converging on economics i mean you've got nasim taleb and and yourself um but then you've got also people like uh, charles eisenstein and daniel schmackenberger who are more socially focused and then i think bruce west uh, was the person who really opened my eyes to the healthcare aspect and looking at, I have to share this story because it, it's so fascinating to me. Uh, so he states basically the best um, test to determine the health of the human system is heart rate variability, which is not a regular rate and rhythm of the heart. It's, it's truly on the edge of chaos. And mm-hmm. The greater the uh, degree of that, the healthier the system is. And he saw he found it with uh, breath rate variability as well as gait rate variability. And I was just blown away by that. And it made total sense. I, I could see it in in the clients I worked with as well. Um, what kind of opened your eyes to to this uh, type of thinking? No, I I think that was. Um during my years as an investment banker or an entrepreneur within the banking world, building my own investment banking business, more or less from scratch, first in Scandinavia and and then in in Geneva uh, as well. Um, And really understanding the the limitations, especially if you're working as an entrepreneur within that field and are trying to understand the evolution of the market. What will the market be like in, in two or five, uh, years, then uh, treating the market as a complicated system is just so uh, 
so damaging for your understanding, mm -hmm. especially since um, back then to be able to use the equilibrium theory, apply the equilibrium theory from physics to market problems, um, the early economists, again, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, they had, of course, to make some very crude assumptions to get these models working. And, and back then, they knew that these were very crude assumptions. That's sort of like assuming that all actors in the market are completely rational agents, always um, acting in their own short-term and long-term best interest, which they presumably know what that is. Uh, also having that the whole system has got uh, total uh, uh, information, that there is total transparency about information in the system and, and a lot of, of, of these things, which again, they knew were assumptions, but today, I, I think many, even economists, uh, forget that those were crude assumptions or more or less things that that is how a market should be operating. Mm -hmm. uh, but then again, we have the new, new um, and then also one other uh, mistake, I, I think, uh, was made early in economic thinking. And that was the mistake of believing that the market is a natural system mm. and therefore could be, be analyzed with tools from natural science instead mm -hmm. of understanding that the market is a social system and that it is obviously also socially constructed. And I think that that is, is perhaps one of, of the core insights for me when it comes to really understanding the, the strengths, but also the limitations of the market, but also the potential of a future market, that the mm -hmm. market is a, a social construct and not a, a natural phenomenon. Uh, and of course, all these limitations of the old economic thinking uh, have given birth to new uh, areas of, of research and economic thinking. So, for example, we have today, of course, behavioral economics uh, that looks at, okay, if we are not these, these assumed homo economicus, what are we really as as agents in the market? Mm -hmm. how, how does a human really, really function? And what impact do those understandings have on uh, uh, our economic modeling? Then we already mentioned complexity economics, uh, but I should also mention institutional economics that is starting to realize that uh, the market is depending on these fundamental institutions and that there is no such thing as a, as a free market, even the free market needs the fundamental institutions like, like property rights and things like that. And how you construct those institutions will determine how the market clears. Mm -hmm. so, so of course, there's a new, new economic thinking coming along. Uh, and to answer your question, what made me think about this? Yes, thinking about these terms was, was really trying to be an actor as an entrepreneur in the market. Mm. But then thinking about the importance of inner growth and development and the, that relationship to societal change, that really came through working with some very talented uh, leadership development consultants uh, while I was chairman of the, of the banking group in Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. And I had the opportunity there to 
participate in some leadership development programs, both for myself, but also for my management team, that really opened my eyes to the importance of lifelong inner growth and development. Not just lifelong learning, but this more vertical development that we sometimes uh, talk about. And, and then, of course, I could see the effect that this had on me and on my management team, not just in our ability to handle more complex problems uh, at work, but it also had uh, benefits for me in my private life. And I also think that on some level, it also made us more responsible uh, citizens, being able to uh, look further into the, the future and taking more and more uh, aspects into account when we were making our, our business decisions. And, yes. and then I naturally asked myself the question, well, if we in business, or at least in part of business, understands the value of this lifelong maturation process, and we are even spending money on, on supporting this for the benefit of the organization, how come that we are not at all talking about this in society? <laughs> Again, in society, we are, of course, talking about lifelong learning or starting to talk about lifelong learning but not this lifelong wisdom journey that we all are hopefully participating in. Yeah, you know, you mentioned a couple of things. First of all, I'm in Austin, Texas, so I'm at the, I'm at the hub of Entrepreneur Central. And it's something I've noticed is that the, the most successful entrepreneurs are the ones that are able to think in complexity uh, when it comes to the business that they're working working on. And, um, you know, this is something that I, I try to encourage with, with many of the entrepreneurs that I work with is identifying, you know, this, this new way of thinking and looking, looking at the, the system in a new way. And I, I want to hit on something that you mentioned, you, you talked about the agents in the system. And, um, we can look at we can look at these complex systems, and we we see these agents or nodes, and they're it's not necessarily looking at the right thing. We need to look at the relationship between the different things. It's just like the the liver and the heart is not a just a direct connection, and and that's it. It it actually has multiple interactions, feedback loops, local feedback loops, interactions from other areas. But you talk about this in your book on the the notion of a relationship between like spirituality, health, economics, and society. Uh, can you expand on that? Mm. Yes. Um, um, individual agency and collective agency and, and consciousness development. But I think I need to go back a little bit for us to see really the value of collective agency and that there isn't uh, really a trade-off between individual agency and collective agency or individual freedom and, 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 and collective freedom. Because when you start to realize that so many aspects of our world are social constructs, then you start to realize that for us to change those social constructs, we actually need collective agency. 
And if we are not exercising that collective agency, we are leaving a lot of human freedom and human potential uh, on the table, so to say. Uh, so I, I would like to take an example that to, to make this more concrete. Uh, what do I actually mean by socially constructed and, and collective agency? So if, if I take my life uh, in this year in modernity, for me as an individual, um, it can look to me that I, to survive in this society, I need money and I need oxygen. I need clean air. I need oxygen to survive. And for me as an individual, these, these are meeting me as objective reality. I cannot do very much about this as an individual. But if we look at it on a collective level, even if all of humanity came together and decided that we don't want to be dependent on oxygen any longer, we couldn't do anything about that. But if we came together as, as the whole of humanity or even just a majority in a nation state and decided that we don't want to be dependent on money any longer, money could be gone tomorrow. Of course, we would need some other system for allocating goods and, and, and services, but money and the market system is, is a, a human invention, a very good and very effective human invention, but it is a, a human invention. The fact that I know that money is a human invention or what some call a collective imaginary, part of the collective imaginary, uh, that doesn't help me as an individual. When I'm checking out at my local supermarket, I can't tell the cashier that, well, you're asking for money, but you know, money is just a collective imaginary. So <laughs> forget about that. No, I, I would end up in jail. <laughs> or even as Michael Foucault points out, I might end up in a lunatic asylum because all, we have all these different institutions that are reinforcing this collective imaginary that, that, that we are living in. The, uh, but then, strangely enough, in, in many situations, it looks to me like we are confusing these two, that, that we think that the planetary boundaries are up for negotiations whereas the market forces we just need to obey when it's actually the opposite. Mm -hmm. okay. But then to be able to use that insight that the market and money is a social construct, we actually need, if we want to change that, if we want to change the fundamental function of the market, for example, what can be owned? Shall we be able to own, be able to own genes, for example, the genome. Should someone be able to own that or, or is that something that belongs to humanity? What should we be able to copyright or paint uh, patent? And how long would a, would a reasonable patent or copyright be? Such fundamental things, if you change them a little bit, then you change a lot how the market is clearing. But in order for us to be able to change those things, we need to do that collectively. We cannot do that individually. And I think that during the last perhaps 50 years, we have in the Western world really developed our ability to 
uh, exercise individual collective, uh, individual agency. We are very good at that. Whereas when it comes to exercising collective agency and thereby accessing these collective freedoms that, that we have to reshape our world, the world we create. There, during the last 50 years, I think we have been just been uh, worse and worse and worse in that uh, ability. And I think that is linked also to our collective uh, sense-making. Because for us to be able to exercise collective agency, we first need to exercise uh, collective sense-making. So th that for me uh, is very important. And that is the connection then to your question around inner development and, and societal change. Because seeing these things and, and realizing the freedom that we have both individually and collectively in these complex systems, that is not easy. It's not easy cognitively, but it's, nor is it easy emotionally. And just like we uh, in the executive team of the bank got a lot of help by participating in these personal development programs in actually being able to hold the complexity cognitively and emotionally. I believe that if we should be able to uh, have a functioning democracy that can actually meet these complex challenges, a lot of us need to be able to operate on a much more complex level, again, both emotionally and, and and collectively. Uh, otherwise, I don't really see uh, democracy being able to handle these uh, challenges. Yeah, you talk about the the individual, the collective, and the universal in your book, and um, it it makes me think back to uh, Jean Gebser um, when he spoke about the uh, the gradual. Um, drawing back into the I, the self, uh, over the history, over human history, um, and we can see this with with a lot of uh, native tribes that that have not had that influence, where they see themselves as the collective organism and not much as the I. But we've we've gradually become the hypertrophic I, according yeah. to Gebser, uh, where. It's all about the the I-ness of things and not the the we-ness where we look at things from that that relationship with everything around us, not only the people around us, but the environment and um, and all aspects of our interactions. So I think it's important for us to remember that this this individual perspective that you're mentioning, that 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 is a very strong perspective, and that is a perspective that we should not forget going forward, as is the analytical perspective, the reductionistic perspective, the scientific perspective that we spoke about earlier, that is also a very important uh, perspective. And these two perspectives, they have, of course, given us the, the technological evolution. It's given us modern medicine that we don't want to be without. It has given us human rights and, and democracy. But, but somehow this very singular focus on those limited perspectives. I, I think that that focus is really what is now creating these huge problems that, that we see. I think that that focus is part of this meta crisis, the reason for the meta, meta crisis. And they need to be 
complemented. We, sh we shouldn't forget them, but they need to be complemented with system thinking. There's, there's not just analyzing, but also synthesizing, seeing the system holistic uh, thinking, and then complementing the individual perspective with the collective perspective and uh, collective uh, agency as well. So I think it's finding a balance is where we need to go. And I think that is also Gepsner's uh, conclusion when he arrives at what he calls um, integral consciousness or integral thinking. And in integral, I think even in the name there, it's about integrating uh, these, these and also other perspectives. Yeah, I like uh, how Nassim Taleb um, talks about it. He he said, you know, that we've put so much value on expertise. And he said the experts are valuable. But he said you keep your experts on tap, not on top. You want the more complexity thinkers to be kind of overseeing the whole thing with the input from the experts and not having the experts as the uh, final decision makers. No, no, and and I think uh, um, this is very true uh, everywhere. And I think we also need to uh, take this into consideration when we are thinking about the, the future of of academia, because uh, of course in in academia the the, the small and narrow uh, perspectives have been. Um, uh, dominated, uh, dominating, and uh, I don't think that that is a perhaps a conscious decision, but just the way that the, that the publishing of scientific uh, papers and uh, the peer review and uh, the whole academic system is favoring uh, the very, very narrow perspectives compared to interdisciplinary and synthetic, holistic uh, thinking. When when you're talking about this individual versus uh, the the collective uh, systems, how do we cultivate a strong individual um, kind of perspective within the collective and still have them interact in a way that is um, mutually beneficial? Yeah, I think there are a, a, a few steps there. A first step is, of course, uh, realizing again that many of our most important and most fundamental decisions that we need, that we have to take, and especially in the transition that we might be in now from one system to another, then it's very much about system design. How, how do we design a new system? Or how do we adapt the present system to that the transition will, will be as smooth as possible? Even if we should remember that, I, I certainly believe that as with any complex system, the transition that we are in right now is going to be emergent, which means that we cannot see exactly what is going to come out of the transition. And we can certainly not plan it and we cannot manage it, but, but, but we can support it. In, in different ways. And one important insight is that in, in system design, in designing the fundamental rules of the systems that we have, whether it's an academic system or it's a market system or political system or any system, 
those decisions, those crucial, crucial decisions are collective decisions. And there cannot be anything but collective. So there is no competition here that we should do this collectively instead of individually. No, there is no way to, do, to design the system individually. These decisions has to be taken collectively. So that, that is a first uh, insight. And then you realize that this is not really a zero-sum game, individual versus collective. It's a positive-sum game. We should maximize individual freedom and agency, but at the same time, we shouldn't forget about the importance of collective uh, agency uh, and freedom. And if we are maximizing our total freedom, or our total agency, we need to do maximize both of these. And in many cases, they are not competing at all, but rather comp complementary. So you can say that today we are, by not realizing this, uh, leaving a lot of human freedom and potential just uh, uh, un untapped. Um, so um, I think that is the main point I, I would make, realizing that this is not a zero-sum game between individual and collective, but it's rather a positive-sum game. And I could even go one step further in saying that if, if you are to maximize your collective, your, your individual well-being in some way, if, if you are going to maximize your collective well-being in, in some ways, some of the most important ways of maximizing that is through collective uh, decision-making. So if you're not participating in, in, in that and encouraging the, uh, the collective decision-making, the system's design, then you are not maximizing your individual agency because your individual agency, sorry, in your individual happiness or, uh, or your individual well-being is so dependent on the systems that you uh, uh, are living within. You are so dependent on the systems. How do you, how do you address the, um, the argument that in, if we went strictly by collective decision-making, then the majority would make the rules. And so you would have uh, discrimination against the minority in that situation. Yeah. Yes. And, and of course that, 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 that is always a, a, um, uh, a risk with any system design um, uh, and we have that today so for me it's important to re remember that it is not the question should we design our system should we create should we actively participate in the creation of the world again the world we create uh, uh, or should we just let the world happen because the world is created and the systems are created and the systems are evolving. But so far, we have mainly done that uh, unconsciously uh, and, been, and it has been a very um, erratic process. So, for example, taking the market system, of course, all these fundamental rules or constitutive rules of the market uh, has been agreed upon. But not in any systematic process. It has it has more or less been a um, a random walk uh, process. Uh, so for me, it's not ask, asking the question: Shall we actively design our system and then risk run the risk of perhaps 
uh, not doing the absolutely 100% best system? Or should we just um, let the system happen to us through a more or less random political process, perhaps guided very much by uh, conflicting uh, uh, special interests and, and lobbying groups and, 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 and all of that? Mm -hmm. um, and then we come back also to the question there of uh, uh, consciousness development and uh, the question of who question of who are we designing the system for and again uh, i think it's absolutely necessary for democracy to survive that we come to a point where both those that we elect into political power have come quite a far way on their wisdom journey and perhaps even have been able to uh, transcend many of their basic ego needs and have the ability to look more at what is the good, what is good for society, what is the general good, and also hopefully a substantial part of uh, the people in society, perhaps not a majority, but at least some sort of critical mass have come that far in their uh, wisdom journey that we can actually hold a democracy that is is not at, at least not consciously designing system that is putting some minority groups at disadvantage even if we can never design a perfect system i've been um really studying the uh, developmental stages of consciousness the different um the different systems of evaluation and it seems uh, pretty consistent that I, I think it's 33 percent of the world population still falls into a um, uh, concrete ego state and you know there's there's few people that really are able to access the um I, I call it the the 404.5 where complexity thinking uh, actually kind of kicks in and you're able to look at everything in this way. I mean, I haven't seen many political leaders that have been in that in, in that uh, stage of consciousness where they certainly not in the metaware stage, but you know, in the complexity stages even, I I think, you know, we've been lacking in political leadership in that regard. Mm. But of course, we, we should remember that we are living in a society, at least in the Western world, we are living in a society and in a culture where this uh, inner growth, lifelong inner growth and maturation and, and wisdom journey is not generally acknowledged. Mm -hmm. um, and our educational system is, is, is not uh, uh, directed towards wisdom creation and generally people are not aware of the importance of, of this uh, uh, dimension in life. And some in the business world are talking about the need of not just helping business leaders to develop their consciousness through specific consciousness development or leadership development uh, programs, but actually creating organizations that have a culture that is 
deliberately developmental. And there we are talking about a deliberately developmental organization. Imagine that we would realize the importance of this dimension generally in society, and we would aim to develop a deliberately developmental society where we had a culture and we had an institution that were deliberately supporting people, everyone, on this developmental journey and made us aware of this developmental uh, journey, then hopefully we could, we could have a different situation. Mm -hmm. But again, looking at complex evolving systems, we also know from complexity theory that in order to shift a system, you do not need to reach a majority of, of the components mm -hmm. in a system to, to shift. Mm -hmm. and, and what makes a system shift is often the ability of the components of the system to relate to each other and to the context in more complex ways. Mm -hmm. And of course, when we are talking about a societal system, those components are us humans. So I believe that the best we can do in order to facilitate a positive emergence in this system shift at this bifurcation point uh, is to help as many as possible of us to relate in deeper and more complex ways to ourselves, to each other, to society, and to the planet. And again, going back to complexity theory, we don't need to have a 51% that, that will be able to do this, but we would probably reach a tipping point at some point. Some are talking about that we need 5% or 10% or 15%, and that varies from system to system, but somewhere there, if you have that critical mass, then the system can reach a tipping point, and that's where you can create a, a society that could actually support even more people to reach their full potential in, mm -hmm. in life, and as early as possible also. In, in, and I want to get life. into, you know, what you see as our path forward in this, but um, one thing you mentioned earlier that I think we should clarify, um, because is, people hear this term, but a lot of people are not familiar with the meaning behind it, which is the metacrisis. Mm, yes. Can you can you kind of give an overview of, of what is meant by that term? Uh, I think the easiest way to understand it uh, is that all these different crises that, that are facing humanity right now, many different existential crises. Uh, crises, like, of course, the env env environmental crisis, but also we have a crisis in, in the democratic systems, in many democratic systems in the world. We have a psychological ill health crisis. You mentioned the obesity crisis before, and we have many, many uh, crises. And talking about the meta crisis, acknowledge the fact that these different crises might not be independent but they might actually be symptoms of a more fundamental underlying meta-crisis. Mm -hmm. um, so that is the first realization. And then one could speculate, speculate about what could that underlying crisis be. And I think that the underlying crisis is that we have again, like many times before in the history of humanity, reach one of these... Um, uh, bifurcation points where our present understanding 
and approach to uh, the world has really uh, exhausted itself. And of course, the last time we had such a point was during the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, when we went from a medieval feudal system with a dogmatic religious worldview into a, a modern industrial democratic society with a scientific rationalistic worldview. And again, that was a huge stage, step forward for humanity and has given us this all the benefits of the modern world. But again, I believe that those systems and approaches are have now reached their limit. And with the rapid technological uh, development that we are seeing right now, we are rapidly reaching a point again in, in the evolution of society where we will have an at least equally deep shift into a new a new society. And yeah, of course, like the, these. Oh, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say that these transitions are usually quite turbulent. So yeah. there the, 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 the were many wars fought in the transition from the pre-modern world into modernity. And mm -hmm. again, we should expect this transition also to be turbulent and emergent. But if we are aware of, the, of this shift in a self-conscious way, in a completely different way compared to what we have previously uh, experienced, then of course we could hopefully mitigate the, the chaos. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like these these emergent properties occur very rapidly in systems, and uh, it's it's over a short time frame. So you look at you know our our history and and how these major changes in society took place over very short periods of time. Mm -hmm. And you know the one thing that I am wondering about is you know, how predictable is it for us to predict what the next emergence is? I mean, we can, we can theorize this, but I mean, how certain are we that uh, we're going to have this, this emergent property that we're predicting? Yeah. And uh, I, th I think that that is one of, one of the main conclusions of, of my book, that the world we create, that mm -hmm. I think it's very certain uh, that we are hitting uh, a phase shift, a, tra a transition point. Mm -hmm. But whether this will be a breakdown of the system, where the system will just um, fragment, which many complex systems do when they reach this bifurcation point, they cannot support a positive transition, an emergent transition into a more complex and perhaps sometimes also more, more beautiful way, simple way complex but beautiful elegant is perhaps the right word a, a more complex but often also more elegant way of organizing itself then it, it will be a breakdown so the question is will will this transition be a breakdown of the system or a breakthrough and and what can we do to increase the odds for a breakthrough and my main conclusion is that it's actually up to us we we are not just the spectators in this system. We are the agents of this system, again, individually and collectively. And if we really take that 
responsibility, but also that freedom, seriously, and exercise that agency, then we can help the system to reach uh, a positive emergence. Whereas if we don't do that and just remain passive uh, spectators of what is going on, uh, then I'm sure that that it will be a breakdown Mm -hmm. instead of a breakthrough. But then the next step, so the first is to, to realize the, that we have agency and, and exercise the agency. But then the second uh, important step is from what level of consciousness are we exercising that agency individually and collectively? And there I also come to the conclusion that in order for this positive emergence to happen, we need to exercise this agency, specifically our collective agency from a uh, next level of of consciousness. And that might be the level that you were referring to that Gebsner mm-hmm. was calling an integral consciousness. Do you think uh, AI is is really accelerating this, uh, this emergence right now? I, I think that um, it is the technological development that we see around us right now, that just like in the history before when we had these huge transitions. I mean, in the, the biggest transition like this that humanity might have gone through is, was during the axial age 3000 years ago. And then of course it was the invention of written language, w- which made it possible to have these organized religions that made us take that step. And you could argue that the uh, enlightenment and industrial revolution was very much facilitated by again new information technology like the printing press and now we have information technology again not just the internet but perhaps more interestingly the distributed ledger technology that makes it possible to to aggregate and manage uh, information in a completely different way that i believe can benefit both the reinvention of the market and reinvention of democracy I hope that in 20, 30 years in a new uh, system, we will still have democracy and we will still have the market, but it will be in new updated implementations. Mm -hmm. And again, I think that uh, uh, AI could also help in this transition, but then we need to apply it with, uh, with wisdom because it, it could also, just as we've seen with social media, it, it, it could contribute to um, the fragmentation of our society uh, as well as the integration of society. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's kind of close out here with what we can do. I mean, what are the steps we can take to, uh, to get us moving through this this pending emergence and in, in doing it in the right direction without the collapse. Mm. So if, if I should say a few things there, first, first of all, becoming aware, not just individually, but also collectively aware that we are in a transition like this and that we need to be open and curious about what wants to be born, but also be open to let go of old uh, institutions. And if we realize that we are in this transition and understand how these transition in complex dynamic system works, th- that will be a good uh, starting point. 
Then I would say as a second point, realizing that in a transition like this, there is a lot of collective agency that we need to exercise. And in order to do that, we need to have collective sense-making. So being very careful about uh, uh, guarding our possibility to have collective sense-making in this transition, uh, I, I, I think it's important. And then finally, to, to realize that uh, one of the most important aspects in facilitating a positive em emergence is in any complex system, living system, conscious systems, living systems, or, or physical system, is the ability of the components in the system to relate to uh, each other, to themselves, and, and to the context in, in more complex ways. And, and that is another way of uh, saying that we need to uh, have an inner development and to be able to, again, both cognitively and emotionally handle the complexity of the whole situation. So inner development on, on large scale and being aware of the need for that. And again, that that is certainly something that we can do on an individual basis, but again, uh, from society recognizing and, and supporting that uh, development, I think can also be crucial. You think uh, education at this point um, is too far off to begin with, or do you think that we get the education into the system um, collectively that um, that we can really make a difference at this stage. Again, we should remember that, that the education we have today was more or less uh, invented for uh, the modern system mm -hmm. and, and was very helpful in bringing the, the modern system about and the positive emergence that came about from the medieval system. It was a general uh, ed education and educating us into being uh, good citizens in an industrial society. Uh, I think that we are now at a point where more and more people realize that we have to fundamentally reinvent also the educational system and not the least the fact that the technological development is going so rapidly. Um, it's completely impossible to know, apart from the basic reading, writing, uh, and, and arithmetics, what should we teach young people at secondary school or even at university? And, and of course, in Sweden, it was be, it's been very popular during the last couple of years to say that everyone needs to pro learn how to program. But of course, when you speak to the technical uh, industry and they they say well we need a lot of programmers this year and next year but certainly artificial intelligence one of the first things that that, that will make uh, redundant are are the programmers so we don't know what to what specific technical skills uh, and knowledge we we should uh, give to the next generation and then of course these more general uh, soft skills becomes much, much more 
uh, important. And then we are back to this mm -hmm. lifelong uh, maturation journey and starting that early in life and then having a lifelong support of that maturation journey. And that could be the main uh, part of an, an ed a future education system. And then the specific tasks you might need to constantly learn anew every five or ten years and that training might be mainly done through uh, the organization that you're working for i like how you framed it in the book with the um, human evolution of self and focus with the ethics empathy and compassion and then moving into uh, complexity awareness, contextual awareness, relational awareness, self-insight awareness, and per perspectival awareness. Mm. You know, can that be taught in the in the in the education system? Yeah, th th that is that is of course um, a, a, a very big question, and uh, a project that I'm involved with called the Inner Development Goals are really looking into uh, the question how can we increase the awareness in the system of the importance of exactly these capacities that you were mentioning? And how can we support that development? And the good news is that science clearly shows that these capacities that you mentioned, they can be developed. For example, we are not born with a certain amount of empathy and compassion. We, we can both extend uh, our ability of, of compassion and empathy, and we and we can deepen it, but you cannot really do that with with empathy, nor with the other uh, capacities and skills that you mentioned, like complexity awareness, uh, self uh, awareness, perspective taking, and and those things, because you need a learning that is a much on a much much deeper psychological level. So some uh, thinkers are talking about transformative learning and it's difficult to do that in a traditional school setting but it is certainly possible to uh, uh, to do that uh, absolutely well that's great and i love having this conversation with you you know i've been i've been looking forward to it since i read the book i was like i i just gotta gotta have a conversation with this guy um, thank you you know, it's uh, it's nice to understand that you know we are in a in a meta crisis right now, but that we can actually do something about it. It's not a because I hear a lot of people uh, talking about the meta crisis as you know we're we're going to crash. I mean, they're very convinced that the whole system is going to crash very soon, and and I'm more optimistic than that. I think. Uh, I think we as a society, as a collective of the of this earth, I mean, I think we can we can make we've done it before. I think we can make it uh, happen again. Yeah, and I think that that is a very important realization that we have done it before, and that that is why I, I start the book by really going through uh, on a hundred pages the 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 history of humanity or the history of the yeah. universe from, from the big bang to the market as, as mm -hmm. the subtitle uh, is. And the history clearly shows that the hum humanity has a, a tremendous ability to uh, uh, reinvent itself. 
and uh, and that that is through our ability to use symbolic language and to build culture and build these civilizational systems mm -hmm. and we have rebuilt them many 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 uh, times uh, but it has been mostly a random process and we we throughout history we could really afford in quotation marks to do this as a random walk process because when civilizations have crashed uh, throughout our history, even huge civilizations. So when the Roman civilization, for example, crashed, it affected a large part of, of Europe, but it didn't affect the whole world. It didn't affect the ecosystem. Whereas now, if our global civilization were to uh, crash, it would affect the, the totality of uh, civilization and it could even mean a, an ecological collapse and the end of humanity. So uh, the stakes have never been higher, but we have many times been able to reinvent ourselves. But we have to realize that this reinvention is not just a reinvention out there in, in, in the systems and in the physical reality. It is also a reinvention of our culture and our values. And it's also an internal uh, reinvention. We have to reinvent ourselves. We have to reinvent our, our consciousness. But we have done it, and I hope that we will do it again. So that being said, what resources do you suggest for people to uh, kind of learn more about this and and dive into really development, developing these uh, different um, pieces of wisdom? If you are generally interested in, in systems uh, thinking, uh, I, I would recommend a book by Fritjof Capra, and I don't remember his co-author's name uh, right now, but the book is called A System's View of Life. Life, yeah. yeah. I love yeah. that book. <laughs> yes. It, it's, it's a good introduction in, into, uh, into systems thinking. Um, and... Um, if you are interested more into uh, inner development and personal development, and especially the relationship between personal development and societal change, I would recommend that you check out the Inner Development Goals project mm. with the URL innerdevelopmentgoals.org. Um, there you can find uh, some tools and thinking and, and also a growing international uh, community of, of people who are interested in exploring our possibilities of individual and, and collective uh, growth. Well, that's great. I hope, uh, I hope we have many, many of the listeners uh, dive into, into that information for sure. And I want to thank you for taking the time to, um, sit down with us for an hour. This has been a really a great session and much gratitude for your, uh, your input on all of this. Thank you, Daniel. It's, it's been a pleasure. This podcast is for informational purposes only. 
The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.